Hello. Um, good evening, everybody. My name is Max Delaney. I'm Artistic Director at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. And it's indeed a great pleasure to welcome you this evening to the launch of ACCA's Cities of Architecture Lecture Series program. Um, and we're really pleased to welcome Diego Ramirez Lovering, John Denton and Chin-Yi Lim. Um, we're really delighted to um, join with M Pavilion in hosting this evening's uh, launch of the program which will unfold, uh, unfold over a monthly um, basis the program of eight lectures um, or talks exploring recent architectural, urban and cultural histories and conditions of some of the world's most inspiring and interesting cities. Before introducing the series and tonight's program, I would like to acknowledge the context in which we gather and extend our respects to the Bunwurrung, the traditional owners and sovereign custodians of the land upon which we meet, and along with the Wurundjeri and other Kulin nations, and I also extend our respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who join us this evening. The Cities of Architecture uh, lecture series will take place at ACCA, as I mentioned, on a monthly basis. Um, beginning next March, on the 20th of March, we will head off to Tokyo with Marika Noistupni, Director of NMBW Architecture Studio. In April, we will travel to Venice, presented by Stuart Harrison, co-founder and co-host of The Architects, now dearly departed from 3RRR, and director of Melbourne Architectural Practice, HAW. And that will, of course, be a very important primer for those who are planning to attend Venice for the um, Vernissage of the Venice Biennale in May. Um, Houston will be the next stop in May, um, presented by Don Bates, director of Lab Architecture Studio and chair of architectural design at the University of Melbourne. In June, we will visit Madrid, presented um, by Chin Li Lim, one of our guest speakers this evening, who is founding partner and architect at Sibling. In July, we'll visit Shanghai with James Brearley, partner of Brearley Architects and Urbanists. And Barcelona is the subject of our um, August lecture, presented by Mark Burry, executive architect and researcher at the Sagrada Familia Basilica in Barcelona and professor of urban futures at the Melbourne School of Design at the University of Melbourne. Uh, in September, we will travel to Isfahan, presented by Justine Clark, editor, writer, and honorary research fellow at the University of Melbourne, uh, along with Miriam Goucher, lecturer in architecture of the faculty of the built environment, the University of New South Wales. And finally, we'll conclude the series in October with a focus on Guadalajara, presented by Diego Ramirez Lovering, head of architecture at Monash Art Design and Architecture, co-founding managing director of Monash Architecture Studio, and our presenter and chair for this evening's discussion. The series is supported by our presenting partner, Abercrombie & Kent, a luxury travel company offering unique adventures and vacations around the world. And also by the Melbourne Gin Company and Starwood Whiskey, who will devise a complimentary cocktail created for each city over the course of the series. <laughs> uh, tickets are available both on a casual basis, but also a season pass um, for $200. And uh, Grace White is here this evening with an iPad if people would like to make bookings. Um, she's at the front here. And otherwise, you can look at ACCA's website online. Um, as a primer to the series, we're really delighted and honoured to have convened a program this evening in collaboration with our friends at M Pavilion. And I'd like to acknowledge Robert Buckingham, Jesse French, um, Jennifer Zalinska, um, as well as ACCA's manager of public programs, Alison Lasek. It's a great pleasure to introduce this evening's esteemed group of architects. Diego Ramirez Lovering, as I mentioned, is head of architecture at Monash Art Design and Architecture and is also about to embark on an extraordinary um, project in Indonesia and in uh, Fiji, which is a sort of slum uh, 
development and reclamation program, which I'm sure Diego will speak about at some stage this evening. Um, we're also delighted to welcome John Denton, Joint Managing Director of Denton Corker Marshall and also Chair of ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art, and Chin-Yi Lim, Founding Partner and Architect at Sibling. With their significant experience in a breathtaking range of urban, architectural, intellectual and cultural contexts internationally, it's a wonderful group to consider the manifold questions of urbanism and architecture through the vehicle of the global city. Diego has generously offered to serve as moderator for the tonight's panel and recently circulated a series of questions or provocations as a starting point for the discussion. Um, in short, um, and he'll be taking into consideration a whole range of social, economic, infrastructural, geopolitical change and challenges in the contemporary society and how they might um, impact upon housing, commerce, public space and cultural activities in our developed urban contexts and how we might also reimagine those contexts in new and different ways. We trust the conversation will provide a helpful context and framework for a lecture series which covers a wide range of different cities, diverse geopolitical contexts and urban conditions. So without further ado, please welcome Diego, John and Chin Yi. Thank you. Okay, good evening everyone. First of all, um, it's, uh, it's great to be here. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, thank you very much, Alison and Max, for putting this fantastic series together. I think it'll be really great. Isfahan, Tokyo, Guadalajara. Interesting discussions. Um, and really looking forward to those cocktails. Uh, so, okay. I mean, I think tonight I'd like to keep it relatively informal. I'll set up some points for discussion. I'll ask a couple of questions. Um, and open it up for discussion with the panel first, uh, and then we will turn to you for uh, questions and comments. Uh, so as Max mentioned, um, I will be speaking in October, later this year, about the city of Guadalajara, which is where I'm from and where I began my career as an architect. Um, and I suppose when asked to think about tonight's um, session, Really, it started, to, it started as a reflection of having operated in contexts um, in, I guess, a developing world context, developing world cities, um, and uh, developed cities. So initially in, um, in Latin America, uh, doing a, a, a range of research projects around informal economies, in, informal settlements, so housing. Um, which in, in Mexico, which is not that different probably to a lot of Southeast Asian contexts, represents about 40 to 50% of the economy. So it's a huge, huge um, sector. And, um, and of course, brings with it a, an enormous amount of problems, but then also has enormous potential. Um, in comparison then, uh, working here at Monash, and um, initially uh, doing a little bit of work as an architect, but then becoming an academic um, and a researcher, urban researcher, and doing uh, work around, um, I suppose, uh, housing, initially housing affordability, which is what my PhD was focused around, volume housing, um, issues of transitioning cities, um, and um, with, with a team, including Professor Shane Murray, the dean of, our, of, of the faculty here. Um, and that work was really interesting. What became very apparent, though, was how few options there were, in my view, particularly around housing, but I'll, I'll talk about other areas as well, 
uh, for finance, how, how few options are, there were for, um, for de delivering different procurement models, for thinking about housing in different ways. And then as we expanded our research into other areas, uh, more to do with uh, um, procurement of development generally or uh, infill development, our suburbs, it started to become apparent that there, the policy frameworks are often very limited. That, of course, uh, brings with it a, a lot of certainty um, and minimizes risk, which is, um, of course, understandable. But then, as the city diversifies, grows, doubles in population over the next, well, it's debatable, over the next few decades, uh, then it seems to me that it's really important to ask how we contend with that growth, how we, uh, how we open up the options, how we, how we start thinking about things in new ways. You know, and then, so I suppose I wanted to read a quote um, which um, in some way encapsulates this notion of what I think every city is really some sort of balance and negotiation of top-down um, uh, uh, strategies, effectively, and bottom-up um, what we call tactics. And there's a quote by uh, 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 Michel de Certeau from the 70s um, who talks about this in Practice of Everyday Life, who refers to the dialectic relationship between strategies and tactics. He links strategies with institutions and structures of power and, tax and tactics, which are seen as tools of the weak, utilized by individuals to create space for themselves in environments defined by strategies. So this is where the f whole informal sector, I guess, uh, comes to play in, in developing world cities. But in many ways, even um, here in Melbourne, we see, uh, or in developed world cities generally, we see a whole range of different, um, different ways in which these tactics and these different bottom-up uh, uh, um, activities uh, um, are, uh, are all really all around us. So then I suppose I'm interested in this, in this tension. I'm interested in, in, in the balance between those two, uh, how you can allow for an opening up of policy frameworks where uh, there are more flex, there's more flexibility, there are more options. On the other hand, of course, uh, governments are risk averse. There are many reasons why you wouldn't do that. So it has to be done carefully. Um, so I guess then I'll go to the panel. Um, and it's, uh, it's interesting to, s to have two architects which in some way are at the opposite ends of the spectrum, I suppose. Um, Chinyi Lee, uh, 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 director of a uh, co-director of Sibling, and Sibling has made its name over the last few years for um, really contributing to the debate of architectural practice in really interesting ways. I would call you an alternative practice, and I'm sure you'll refute that in no time. <laughs> um, but uh, really, I guess trying to identify and expand the way in which architects can contribute. Um, then we've got John Denton, of course, director of, of DCM, a very well-established uh, uh, international practice. We were just talking about his office in Jakarta. Um, and uh, and a, a, a large uh, uh, group of staff um, 
and also experience as government architect uh, from 96 to 98, if I'm not mistaken. Sorry, 2006 to 2008, one yep. decade later. So I guess I'll just put, I'll, I'll throw it out there. Initially, I'm curious, maybe, John, if we start with you, um, your thoughts, I mean, having been exposed to, to the machinations of government here, state government here, what are your thoughts initially on these, on these tensions? Well, I think, I think they're sort of very real, and I think it's a, it's a, a complex sort of thing because by their very nature, governments want to manage, regulate, control, and push towards getting what they see as the best outcome, what makes Melbourne the best city that it is. Um, and at the other end of the scale, is there's, there's what you're talking about, which is the, 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 um, the underlying sort of push to, 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 to do things that are alternative or break the rules or don't quite fit or are more interesting. Um, and I think, I mean, I, I saw it as the government architect when I was asked to look at how was Docklands going. Mm. And Docklands is a state government creation. Um, and it set all sorts of rules, like it's, it said, it, all development should be 15 metres back from the water because you've got to give the, the public the water's edge. The public must have the water's edge. Therefore, everywhere has to be 15 metres back. And when I became government architect, I, I went down to speak to the Docklands Authority and I said, but why? You know, where, where's the excitement? Where's the interest? Where's the dope? Where's the, the, the things that make things happen? Why can't one of the developers stick two columns in the water and bridge over that 15 metres. Why can't the 15 metres be closed off to force people back in to a really nice square and then let them back out onto the water? Why can't there be lots of things happening? Incredibly difficult to, to, to create that sort of spontaneity and, and, and life and, and interest, which is, which is what happens when people come from the bottom up with, with, with no knowledge of the rules and just want to do things. They just want to create create life and, and things and, and I think it is incredibly difficult and I think depending on the tier of government it is harder. If it's state government they're far more regulatory and far more controlling than say municipal government. I mean I think the city of Melbourne's probably more uh, acceptable of diversity and change and activity than, than the state government is. I think the federal government's even worse sort of thing. So in that hierarchy it's, where do you where do you get down to the ground ground roots and how do you make it happen and I think it is a really quite difficult thing to do. Yeah, I mean it, it is interesting. I suppose Docklands being um, cited as in some ways encapsulating a lot of the problems of top down uh, development, and I think it'll it'll ch no doubt it'll change over time. In fact, it's already quite significantly different to what it was. Um, well, well that, yeah, that's right because they they said break it up into big parcels and sell yeah. them all off. So what you got was MAB doing development up in what I call South Footscray and you got Mervac doing development down on the yeah. south bank of the river and you got Lend-Lease doing development in the middle. But what they were doing was little developments all over the place with nothing in between, no life, no linkages, yeah. no activity. They didn't actually build the tram down into Ducklands until quite recently. So it was a, it was, it was a pretty disastrous start to it all. But I think, as, as you say, give it another 10 or 20 years and it'll be a different place. But to me, that's not the way you do. That's not the way you use urban design. That's bad urban design. And the mm. fact that you don't, they would have been better to concentrate in the middle and then grow outwards rather than disperse 
and try and wait till the, 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 the gaps met up. Mm. I mean, it is, uh, I suppose, really interesting when you see um, a kind of acknowledgement of this sort of lack of life and then even developers, big developers, saying, oh, well, we need a pop-up this or we need a, you know, uh, uh, um, uh, some sort of activation that. And this notion that, you know, the idea of bottom-up has been co-opted to activate things, and, and in some way you can understand that, but I think that maybe goes to my question to you, Chinyi, which is... Well, it's interesting because yeah. a few years ago, I think um, Sibling and uh, a few other small practices were mm. kind of um, contacted to... Well, we were offered spaces within the Docklands, empty kind of commercial spaces, and we were offered, you know very low rents to have our offices there and our studios there but I don't think anybody took on the offer <laughs> um, and it just felt a little bit like a band-aid approach yeah. to the situation yeah. and I think I mean maybe uh, governments need to get um, maybe more emerging um, younger architects or planners involved earlier on in the process mm. when developing these new spaces in the city mm. yeah so, I mean, I completely agree. I think it's it's often um, a question of risk and um, risk management and so on. Can you, I was going to ask about your um, Occupy exhibition. Yeah. So we were part of the Occupied exhibition. We took on the loft space and it was called Supershared. We worked with Jackie Alexander, um, a PhD candidate at RMIT. Monash. Oh, Sorry, Sorry. <laughs> the exhibition was at RMIT. <laughs> That's um, but the, I guess the concept for Supershared was to turn this um, leftover space in the exhibition um, into a shared space. And so we put it up on all sorts of different sharing platforms such as Airbnb, Gumtree, Couchsurfing. But we, we came into all sorts of um, problems being able to share this space because it essentially was owned by the university. So we started to realise you actually needed to own something to be able to share it. And then our installation ended up being, I guess, uh, a critique or questioning platforms such as Airbnb, which are kind of marketed to be, you know, uh, this um, kind of sharing app that, you know, brings lots of people into the city and, like... Um, spreads tourism throughout and allows people to supplement their income but actually we were interested more in the impact it has on housing affordability which is something you know myself and my peers talk a lot about mm. um so yeah mm. yeah i mean it seems to me that um i mean initially air i, I went to, to university with the guys that, start, that started airbnb and um kn knew them when you know they initially this tiny idea that just went sort of you know global mm. uh, very quickly because it was a framework for allowing in a way the common citizen to get engaged financially and um, and uh, um, and and otherwise in in this uh, in, in opening up their you know locked assets if you will um, what were previously locked assets so it seems to me that in some way and they were they were activists they were always kind of maybe not dissimilar in, uh, to, to, to sibling, I suppose, very interested in how, you know, ab about citizenship and the role of citizens in, um, in shaping a city. Mm. 
And, and now it seems to me what's happened is that it's these kind of bottom-up tactics that initially were intended to have become completely institutionalized and are now something totally different. Yeah. So it is, it is this balance, I suppose, of, and same you could say about Uber, you could say the sharing economy has sort of offers a whole range of examples. But um, I think housing affordability, that's a, that's a really interesting one. I was going to go back to you, John, about that. <coughs> well, I mean, it is, it is a real problem, problem and I think um, whenever I start thinking about housing affordability, I start thinking about the, the homeless down Flinders Street outside the station and where, where that's got us, where we've, how we've dealt with that in a, uh, you know, in a not terribly satisfactory manner. Mm. A, a, a city where the, where the Lord Mayor initially was quite supportive and responsive and looking for answers and saying, we've got to do this, we've got to do that, to a council of the city changing their mind and just saying, no, clear them out. Um, you know, the, 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 the bottom up is really starts there in a way, in a way and, and where does that go? And, and you, you sort of wonder about um, what the real tactics for helping that situation is and it's for, it's for, for, you know, and it's for that sort of shared affordable living of some, of some description yeah. as, as a tier below affordable housing. And then how do we deal with affordable housing? Because obviously we've, we've massively disinvested in, in social housing. There's so little of it and such a waiting list for it now. And, um, you know, yet we're uh, the most livable city in the world with uh, lovely boulevards and nice clean streets and um, all, those, all those things that are nice for the tourists but not necessarily for a whole lot of other people who are the who are the fabric of the city. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it is, um, it is an interesting concept. Most I think we're no longer most livable. It goes between Vancouver and Melbourne, I think, uh, but anyway. Close to it, though. <laughs> close to it. Yeah, yeah, so close <laughs> to it. So, and, and that's often cited um, as, a, as a, um, I guess, a problem of these kind of indexes of livability when you actually live in the city and... Uh, are starting a you know you're young starting a career maybe a young family and it's so Im it's nearly impossible now to own anything uh, rental um, uh, opportunities are really limited the, the stock is 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 uh, very limited and um, the options really aren't there aren't many options I mean there there are new models that are emerging Nightingale I think shows a lot of promise and maybe we can talk a little bit about that later. I suppose just reflecting on the work, uh, the the project that um, Max mentioned is a very large project that has just been awarded to a, a large team led by Monash and a number of different universities globally to revitalize 12 informal settlements in Fiji and 12 in Indonesia, so 24 communities over fi a five-year period with the capital works funded by the Asia Development Bank. And the, um, the, the idea is to develop a kind of revitalization model where, the, uh, where health will be uh, monitored and you can uh, uh, provide alternatives to current, uh, I guess, revitalization models. What's really fascinating, at least being exposed to this um, just in the last year or so, to me, is the number of options that the Asian Development ha uh, Bank has for housing finance, tenure, shared, co-ownerships, uh, 
two couple of dozen options for different ways of renting and owning and long-term leases, short-term leases, and um, and of course these are uh, uh, developed. These options are developed because the the range of, uh, of of different types of needs is enormous, and there are a whole range of different um, people different needing different things. But it's the same here. It is the same here, and it, and, and it always sort of bamboozles me as to why there aren't more options out there. Yeah, I mean, when I was, again, when I was the government architect, we were looking at housing affordability, so that's um, eight or ten years ago. And there are models that are used in the UK and elsewhere in the world where the government will co-own property with you. In other words, they, they put up half the money and they have a 50% equity in the property and you put up half the money, so your mortgage is then significantly less. And all the the deal is just that when you sell, the government gets half of what the half of what the property's worth. Because they get their half back, and you get your half back. But it's a kick-up start to to uh, to doing it. But again, once you then get into those sorts of things, you get into federal government things, and it just became too hard for government. And I I think that's yeah. that's that's where the problem lies. It's sort of too hard to get into, the, into more adventurous sort of models of, of, of finance to help peop, lower income people get into properties of, of whatever, you know, of sort. Plus we probably don't have the models, the suitable models of smaller affordable housing types mm. that, uh, that, that can be offered. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that, that's right. Ultimately, I mean, it seems to me a lot of these um, questions uh, boil down to um, policy frameworks, financial mechanisms, risk, um, often uh, really leaving the architect um, in some way able to do very little because we're at the, we're at the receiving end, mm. right at the tip where everything, all the decisions have been made and, um, and really, it's very hard to contribute within within that framework that's already been set. So I guess um, also that brings the question: Well, what is the what is the role of the architect within these spheres? Um, and something we've been talking about at Monash is thinking about ex at least at the very least exposing students to the expanded context of economic, social kind of um, settings that architects operate within. So that they can become government architects, so they can somehow, you know, be um, more conversant in these um, in these contexts, which are really, you know, once once the that uh, that um, grid was established for Docklands, you could you can't do anything more. That's it, you know. Uh, yeah. So, I'd like to then go to you, Chenyi, about um, just thinking about the expanded role of the architect or architect as I don't know. You could call it activist or architect, as um, you know, contributor in ways other than designing buildings. What's your sense of that? Um, I think there's many ways that an architect um, can expand their role beyond the conventional one. Um, I mean, within sibling, um, we, I mean, alongside working with um, you know commission projects, we also have, I guess, a dedicated research arm where we're looking into. <coughs> you know, streams of research that we're interested in. So, for example, we worked with the University of Melbourne on a project called On-Off, which was looking at um, 
being connected within a space that was disconnected to all um, telecommunications or wireless networks. And so it was really an experiment to see how people would behave within this space without having to check their phones every five minutes or Instagram something. Um, and I guess that, like with that project, um, we developed that into kind of commercial spaces as well. So that fed into a larger um, retail space that was um, a fashion brand. It was looking mm -hmm. at like bringing a digital store into a bricks and mortar store. Um, but other, I mean, other ways that we've kind of operated outside of, you know, working with a client and a commission um, was one of our very first projects. Um, and this kind of comes back to the housing affordability issue. Um, so our first commission was for um, a multi-res warehouse conversion um, in a warehouse in Fitzroy, really prime location. Mm -hmm. That warehouse was sitting empty for a couple of years before it was sold on to the client. And um, during the kind of design phase and um, building um, town planning phase and documentation phase, we were given kind of free reign over the space. We moved our office in there, but at the time I was also in between homes along with a couple of other siblings. So we just decided to utilize a whole 800 square meters and build our own dwellings in this space while it lay empty. Um, unfortunately, we got in trouble. <laughs> Building inspectors came by, they kind of <laughs> um, realized that there was something going on there. I mean, we were also putting on a lot of events and um, it became this kind of community space within um, the architecture and design community. Um, and we had to move out. But I had a good year there. Um, and when that was over, um, the project started construction. But this is, I mean, talking, we've, I've talked about this with um, other architects um, who are working in kind of multi-residential projects. And, you know, they've, they've kind of got access to these empty sites in inner in city Melbourne and right. they've talked about, um, you know, designing and building like portable homes that, you know, comply to Resco that could perhaps potentially be um, on the site while for the two years that the project's being developed and then potentially taken down and moved to another site. And mm. But I guess the, the structures or the frameworks with planning and policy kind of make that very difficult, so... Mm. Yeah. Mm. But, I mean, I think it's interesting because I, I worked in Hong Kong for quite a long while and there you had a whole range of housing options that's, that's, that started with um, the Hong Kong Housing Authority building six-storey buildings which had a wall down the middle and a whole series of cross walls like that and each family was just given a U-shaped space op open out to the air and they could do what they liked there, and there was a bathroom. There was a series of bathrooms around the edges, and they built their own. They built their own home within that, and then there was, you know, then it went up to the next stages of things. We did we did um, housing where the average house was um, 225, 250 square feet, 25 square meters was the average house, two bedrooms and with seven people, seven to eight people living in it. Um, but it was, it was only 
at the time, 50,000 Australian dollars at the time to buy one of those, and you got yourself a home in a, in a high-rise building with a, with a, with a lift. Um, so there's a whole, they, they established a whole hierarchy of things. Mm. We, we seem to have lost the, the bottom of the hierarchy. We've lost the, lost the interest in, you know, how, what do we do with, there's the old housing commission or, or you know, social housing. But that's about all that gets built, and there, there, there seems to be a big gap in, in, in what in what in what needs to be built to provide transitional opportunities in in, in the city. I mean, you know, and, and I think that's what what troubles me a lot is that we're we're a great we're a great city. We're you know a lovely city. It's it, it's a beautiful night here. It's in, we're in the gardens. We're across the road from the gallery. We're only a short walk to the city. We've got everything, but we're not actually servicing. A large part of the population that 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 need need that sort of help. Mm. Yeah, it is. I mean, I completely agree. I suppose it is. Um, it is interesting to think about um, the. I mean, I I always get very nervous when the discussion turns into discussions about cities because cities are so complex. And particularly when architects talk about cities, we often default to how things are designed, for example. Um, and I think there's a, there's, a, there's a sort of a move, perhaps a way into starting to understand more, um, as I was saying, the kind of context. Um, in a way, the Nightingale model was, is starting to take shape because there, it, it offered an understanding of a new financial model for the delivery of housing. That was, yes, ultimately, um, in some way, uh, um, uh, related to how the, it was designed and the level of finishes and so on, lack of parking, uh, uh, which brought down the, the, the unit costs, et cetera, et cetera. But it was only able to be done because of this financial understanding. And I wonder, um, then, it seems to me, um, as we progress as a city, as we grow as a city, um, it seems interesting to see, for example, also a lot of practices in, in town, architecture practices that are developing research units within, within the practice to start to understand these, um, these opportunities because um, with, of course, uh, understanding of the financial framework or the policy framework come a whole range of new opportunities. So I think it's not like there's not money to be made in, uh, in a diversified market. I think there is. But it's certainly, um, I think, ultimately uh, interesting for us to question how we operate. Um, I mean, the, 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 the Indonesia-Fiji slum revitalization project has a team, an interdisciplinary team of economists and doctors. And, um, and it's the interdisciplinary aspect of it is wonderful. It has been very difficult to start to speak the same, you know, it's taken a year to speak the same language. It's like we were all speaking different languages initially. But it is interesting how deep expertise in one area all of a sudden opens up all sorts of opportunities um, in, um, say, in a, an economic framework where you start to think of new typologies that can be based on that. So this model that, for example, that you were talking about Hong Kong, uh, I mean, it's called different things in different mm. places, incremental housing maybe, and that's a very typical model where you provide a kind of pot of services in a couple of rooms, and then it grows over time as people have the means or have the, the capacity to. Um, and in a really tried and tested, really, model mm. in a whole range of places. So it is, um, again, I go back to the, to the sort of 
to wondering about why there isn't more diversity here and what we can do to, um, to um, you know, to progress that conversation ultimately. Well, yeah, we, we, I mean, amongst my peers, we also talk about um, more diverse housing models in terms of like sharing homes. I think people, um, I mean, comparing to my parents, you know, in, by the time they were my age, they had their own house and already starting to have a family. But I think, I mean, amongst my peers, we're all kind of putting that back a little longer and a lot of us are still within, you know, shared kind of um, homes and we spend a lot of, um, we spend a lot of time in public spaces, I guess. Um, so the private kind of, I think the private areas that you need within a home um, are reduced um, with larger living spaces or communal zones that could be mm. shared. Mm. Um, and I don't think this is um, some, a model that's really been explored much here, but I think in, the, in Europe there's more examples of co-housing mm. um, that we can look to mm. as well. Yeah. Yeah. That isn't just you know, for students or for youths, but for middle-aged people like me. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the, the the concept of of the of the house being able to adapt as your needs shift is really yeah. interesting. I, uh, I I've done a bit of research on this model. There's a an organization in Canada called the Mortgage uh, Canada Housing and Mortgage Corporation, I believe, and they've got this really interesting model where um, they are, are both they're in a unique position because they're both a lending institution they, they 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 offer mortgages but they're also a developer and they offer these homes that um and this came about i think as a as a re response to the um the global financial crisis in 2008 and the real lack of affordability and, and them wanting to develop new models where um there's a there's a large home that can be um that has a, an annex that can be either let uh, sub, you know sublet or subdivided and sold, and then the mortgage that you uh, that accompanies that takes that into consideration. Mm. So the notion that you can you have to come up with a with a with a, a smaller upfront payment because you're able to let your part part of your ho home out, and maybe as you have a family and the and the family grows into that, then your circumstances change, and then maybe you can sell it. Um, so it seems to me that you know very very clever kind of way of of understanding the, the problem and attaching solutions that are both financial but then also typological in terms of what we do with our buildings. Well, you need, you need things like the big superannuation funds to look at more active ways of putting their money into those sorts of, those sorts of things to, to develop models and, and use some of their money at, in slightly more risk ven risky ventures like that. Because um, they've got, you know, they've got the capacity. Um, often it's just they'll do it happily. Do it if the government provides a guarantee of some sort. Government won't. They won't. <laughs> That's right. I thought there were there were, there was progress in that front. Well, anyway. I don't know. I'm it was threat threatened that they will eventually. Um, and I guess a, a similar conversation could be had certainly about commerce, commercial ventures in our in our city, and how. Um, that's another area, I suppose, of, of interest in the sense of uh, uh, how you regulate commercial activity um, 
and what it allows for and what it, in, what it um, impedes, I suppose, um, the, uh, the example of Renew Newcastle for, you know, uh, for a, a, a very interesting model, I suppose, of thinking of activating uh, uh, bits of unused city uh, for, um, well, commercial or cultural purposes. And similarly, I mean, it seems like this conversation we we're having about pop-up, whatever, cafes and, and other pop-up shops and so on are a, a, a small indication that that could become uh, more uh, prominent in our cities. But it does seem to me another kind of interesting discussion about the, the limits of that and why there are um, why there aren't that many options, I suppose. Um, you, if you look at, again, examples in Latin America or in Southeast Asia, it's everything under the sun. And a lot of those are illegal. And with that, of course, come a whole range of problems. Um, but on the other hand, uh, a whole range of opportunities as well. Um, so I'm not saying that we should, you know, for example, treat cities like in Southeast Asia, where all of a sudden you have stalls everywhere. Um, and on the other hand, it, it seems to me that more flexibility in terms of leasing ar arrangements or um, uh, ability to have different, um, different types of relationships to the street or to different bits of public space, the way in which you regulate public space, for example, is mm -hmm. an interesting question. So I wonder, as a government architect, were you involved in any of those discussions? I mean, well, sort of, but um, state government, by its nature, is aiming to regulate rather than loosen, loosen up controls, and I think that's that is always that is always the problem. There's, we're increasingly regulating and controlling what we do in every single every single way, um, and I think that just makes it harder and harder and harder mm. for anything spontaneous different, illegal, or whatever, or partly slightly illegal, or, or whatever to happen. And, that, and that's, that, that sort of, that is a problem because that's where a lot of the spontaneity and the life and the activity of, a, of, of city life comes from. Um, you know, you got caught up by the building inspectors, well, yeah, serve you right. <laughs> 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 you know, you try and, try and do something that's not really allowed and... <laughs> They're they're on they're onto sure. you in a, in, a, in a flash, and I think that it that is that is the difficulty that that we'll increasingly face because I think we just keep keep developing regulations, we keep expanding regulations. You know that uh, people get more and more worried. It's why you can't, why these days you can't really design a children's playground because they're just by their very nature too dangerous for children to use. <laughs> um, you know, and it, and it, and it's just an absolutely crazy sort of situation. Whereas I think I think if I'm right in Germany, you can do children's playgrounds any way you like because the parents, everybody knows that they are responsible. They they take the risk. They let the children go there. Then then it's their responsibility. It's not the designer of the playground. Um, it 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 reflects in everything we do, and I think it's that's 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 a problem for modern modern government. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that a couple of things come to mind. One is that, um, well, Germany has a whole range of very interesting approaches, I think, 
a whole range of things. I'd say they're they're very progressive in many ways, and um, and they seem to have maybe of the of the countries that I've been sort of looking at just in in, in terms of this discussion have struck some sort of balance. Re a reasonable balance between the flexibility of policy and still some regulation, mm. and um, it seems to me that it's. I mean, within our within our context, uh, you know, so the uh, the Asian Pacific context where Australia is located, we're in, a, we're in a very unusual situation. I mean, we do have Singapore, which is a. Um, it is now, uh, you know, quickly <coughs> developing. It's very very interesting example of an underdeveloped uh, city becoming. It westernized and, and developed very, very quickly and, and sanitizing really all of that activity. Um, but within within our context, the Southeast Asian context, and I'm thinking particularly about Indonesia, that's our, you know, our next door neighbor, and the the impact that um, the impact that we could um, uh, that it could uh, somehow have more open relationships with Indonesia and um, and Southeast Asia generally. Um, so, so the question really is: Okay, we've got Germany. I think is a good example of the this balance, top down, bottom up, provides good examples. We've got increasingly uh, in in Australia an, immig uh, an immigrate growth by immigration, not birth, uh, from Southeast Asia primarily in China. So, can we think of ways, perhaps, of opening up the thinking to the ways in which our neighbors do things? Um, I don't know. It's sort of a circular discussion. But mm. I'm skeptical. <laughs> <laughs> what about uh, I, that, that? That any Australian government structure could ever take on the sorts of things that might happen in Indonesia or Malaysia or mm. or elsewhere in Southeast Asia? Mm. Um, I think they'll find it too hard. Mm. To be on, to be honest, I think mm. it's. I think we're we're locked into a. A pretty tight condition, which I think is only just going to only getting worse. So, so what do we do? <sighs> <laughs> Sorry, John. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh. I mean, Diego, when you were talking. Um, about Germany being quite progressive. I know in Spain as well, um, I'm quite interested in um, how it's a city like Madrid, its urban spaces have been kind of developing, I guess, post-crisis, mm. um, similar to Germany in like the 90s. It's kind of dotted with a lot of um, projects that have stopped in construction or empty kind of urban voids, um, but I guess we're starting to see this kind of, well, it's been the last 10 years now, um, I guess, urban alternatives um, and more tactical kind of strategies to like developing public spaces, which are kind of um, starting to become regulated mm. and part of policy of um, municipal, municipal governments as well. And so I think there's potential for that to happen here as well. But I guess that's like a reaction to a very intense um, socio-economic um, context that Spain's faced. Yeah, yeah I mean, it, it seems to me that there's nothing like a really strong recession to bring yeah. out really inventive approaches yeah. to things. And Australia generally is, you know, very, very 
lucky. Yeah. In, in, we are in a really fortunate position economically. Um, so, I mean, uh, should we open it to the floor? I think so. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> please. I mean, it's a, as you can see, it's a kind of circular discussion about a whole range of things. So any questions or comments are very welcome. If you want to just grab the microphone, thanks. Um, you're talking about Germany. Um, do you think that, I guess, changes to tenancies rather than, say, ownership that give more security would alter the urban landscape? So if people had 10-year leases, for example. Yeah, I, I, I think all, the, all those, those sorts of strategies do help. They give people a sense of permanence. It gives them time to, to manage and develop their, their capacity to do things and the capacity to perhaps buy something or find something and all that sort of thing. I think um, there's lots of those sorts of things that do help. Hmm, maybe. I think yeah, that those sort of things are probably on the edge of possibility because I think that's the... Uh, but, uh, I don't know which government would do it, uh, to be honest. Hmm. Yeah, Max? Yeah, um, Chin mentioned the um, public spaces of Madrid and John mentioned earlier that um, housing projects in Hong Kong whereby planning is sort of developed in a big picture context for improvisation to occur. Are there other examples that you could cite whereby planning provides a platform for, you know, sort of strategic platform for tactics to occur and improvise around a wider framework? Oh. Um, sorry, can you repeat the question? <laughs> sorry. Just really, I, I guess, you know, there's an interesting discussion between strategy and tactics yeah. and between... Um, planning and improvisation yeah. um, and you know, regulation and controls on the yeah. one hand versus more marginal and illegal activity on the other hand. And um, you mentioned, you know, the public spaces of Spain, for example, as being quite productive mm. for urban improvisation, mm. for popular improvisation in public space. And John also mentioned earlier the Hong Kong housing models where a certain shell or framework was established for people to improvise within. And I'm just wondering if there are other models that might exist which could provide interesting models for, you know, thinking about urban planning and city planning which allows for a degree of improvisation and adaption according to it from a community perspective. Yeah, I mean, I, absolutely. There are dozens. And, um, you know, from the, from the notion that you can allow for you know just a change in, in, in use of land and uh, different I mean you know tenancy uh, ar arrangements were discussed earlier the notion that you can have um, for example in housing uh, a, a shared um, you know one model that comes to mind in, in in Holland which is maybe not that different to what John was talking about Hong Kong where the government owns a structural shell of the building and the, te the tenant or the owner will pay for the in internal um, uh, uh, partitions, effectively, which literally halves the cost uh, of, of housing and uh, you know, there allows for a whole range of different things. Um, so I guess uh, 
well, or the, the use of um, the, the way in which you regulate streets. Um, so even, I don't know, you know, the, 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 uh, the um, popularity of taco trucks or food trucks, you know, for example, and is, should be a kind of sign. They're, they're a huge business. And they're starting to be more of them because they're a huge business. And if you look at, for example, Mexico, that is, they're absolutely everywhere. And some of them become semi-permanent, some become more permanent. So the way in which you regulate the street and allow for, you know, zones, uh, you know. So the, the problem I find is that their, their planning frameworks, their um, financial frameworks, that often, again, we have very little control over, and it requires a, a progressive, forward-looking government to be able to take on the risk, because these things are always risky, um, and, uh, and, 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 and make the change. Um, but I, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Any, yeah, over there. Right. So do you want to maybe talk to the microphone? Thanks. Sorry, it's, it's building a little bit on Max's question, but um, I was interested in the financial model point of view. Um, I, I've had a family member that's been involved in the development of a, a, a like mixed housing um, community-owned, but individually community-owned development in Adelaide near the central markets. Mm -hmm. And they worked for very many years, and the, the major barrier was not so much planning, but financial Finance, models. Yeah. And so the Asia Bank thing was very interesting to yeah, me. Yeah. Oh, look, I mean, it's interesting, Shane, who's just leaving, um, and uh, the, the uh, just <laughs> recently <laughs> departed government architect, Jeffrey London, have been doing some research on what are called terminating cooperatives. And there are there are multiple models like this, uh, you know, around around the world. but. The notion that um, you can, uh, for example, as a as a citizen, you can uh, commission a house, uh, or you can or you can um, you can uh, only buy a flat, but you can't commission a flat. And as affordability worsens, the idea that you are, have more control over how uh, flats are delivered, you know, apartment buildings are delivered in in cities is um, is really interesting. So the terminating cooperative idea is effectively a group of citizens coming together and uh, uh, commissioning an architect to deliver a, uh, a, a, an apartment building. Um, and there's a, there's, a, there's a finance structure that accompanies that, um, that uh, finances the project. And at the end of it, the cooperative is, is, um, is uh, uh, broken up. And then you're, you, you, you end up with an, with an apartment that is 20, 30, 40% cheaper because there are no developer costs that are put on top. Um, and that is, um, and the biggest hurdle has always been the reluctance of banks to accept that um, the risk of lending in that way. So it's, um, it's about then having to prove through precedent and through, you know, other means that this is a, a, a tried and tested model of finance that can be very easily adopted here, and I think Jeffrey didn't make some headway in in that. But um, uh, um, so 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 that's just one example. But there there are multiple. I mean, I think the the conversation that was started by John earlier about the superannuation funds and um, there. Um, I mean, do you want to maybe just expand on that a little bit, John? 
Oh, only again, when, when I was the government acting, we were looking at affordable housing. It was quite clear that the superannuation funds had plenty of money and were willing to invest into these sorts of things, but it didn't fit their risk profile uh, and their responsibility to their, uh, the people whose money that they had. But if, for instance, and you know, which was what was discussed, if, for instance, the government pro government provided some sort of umbrella guarantee of some of some limited nature, then it made it all much easier, and, and those funds would 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 come free and flow. And I th uh, and I think it's it's you know as you as you've said as well, Diego. It's it's all to do with risk, and it's you know whether people are going to get their money back if they lend it to someone. And that's that's the the prop. That's where the I think the seat of the problem lies is just that that sort of thing. Mm, mm. Okay, we're at about an hour now. So, are there? Yep, maybe one or two last questions. Hello. Hello. Um, it was actually about risk as well, but in a slightly different context, uh, just in terms of children's play spaces. Yep. <laughs> um, <laughs> Talking about the top-down sort of approach, uh, the Australian standards actually changed uh, relatively recently to reflect more of a European model, to be generally more generous in terms of risk that's allowed in, in play. And I found that local government as well, uh, their play policies are starting to be less risk-averse. Loosen up, yeah. Yeah, to loosen up. And that general attitude... Um, also, the early years learning framework that um, applies to early childhood centres um, also acknowledges the role of risk in childhood education. So that's quite hopeful. I'm wondering mm. what you think in terms of how we can take that as a sign that things might change, that government can change, that top-down can actually realise the, the benefits of risk. Uh, it, I mean, I think it's a, that's a great step forward and it, 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 it's in an area which had to change um, because um, if you look at the design of children's playgrounds over the last 20 or 30 years, they just got dumber and dumber and dumber and dumber and dumber and, <laughs> and harder and harder to do anything interesting and it became just a great big thick rubber mat and a few kids jumping around on it. <laughs> Um, and so, if they're if if they're picking up on that, because I think there is precedent in Europe and things like that, which has allowed them to sort of see the value of of doing that. But how do you expand that out into the whole lot of other things? I don't I don't know. It, it's it's the loosening up process in government. I think is incredibly hard to to uh, to achieve, particularly in federal government and to a lesser extent state government, and probably most easily at at um, municipal level. Yeah, and I, I suppose it ultimately also comes down to um, may, maybe, well, of course, the government, but to a, a, a citizen's approach to risk and risk aversion. Um, and I, I'm reminded of a friend, a friend that lives in New York City told me that he took his son for a play date and, um, to a friend's house and was asked to sign a waiver. <laughs> <laughs> for, the, for the play date because they weren't responsible for you know his son getting hurt, and it just in in the in the kind of Trump era of of anyway I won't go into that but I guess the point I'm trying to make is that it's not just about governments it's about 
the citizens, you know, wanting to change and feeling empowered to actually speak up about change. And I'm sure this, as you say, you know, this, this, ri these ridiculous standards for children's playgrounds apply across so many different categories. You know, disability um, and, and uh, access is another one that some of these things are crazy. And they're, they're of course, um, some of the regulations are really insane. They're of course, they of course mean well, but they have these results that are absolutely abominable. So I think it is about be becoming a, m a more mature uh, uh, city and, and taking on some responsibility and speaking up about these things because they are um, crazy. And it goes through planning as well. I mean, there's, you keep in planning, you keep inventing controls to protect. Everybody has to be, you know, protected in some sort of way, and all those sort of things. And, and as you accumulate those controls, that they they create a really difficult environment in which to do anything, and anything a little bit interesting, a bit different, all those sort of things. It just it takes the takes the uh, the spontaneity out of a lot of it, and what you're able to achieve is is, is is fairly heavily curtailed. Yeah, that's right. And there's really nothing like demonstration projects to show show um, governments and you know lending institutions and so on how things can be done. And I think, in some way, you know, the government architect's job here in uh, uh, in Victoria, certainly also in other states, in in leading the way in those discussions has been great. So. Um, Anyway, I think we're probably there. Um, so any last comments, John or Chinyi? No, no, just nope. work for change. Everyone just needs <laughs> to loosen up a bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think, I, you know, both in I really appreciate the work that, that Sibling does and that you do in terms of um, trying to think of things in alternative ways and alternative solutions that are so needed and then speaking about, up about them and being very articulate about them and then being out, you know, out uh, advocating for these things. So that's great. And then John, you know, as a government architect, I mean, I think it seems like I, you know, if, if more architects were able to enter those discussions and were really mm. active um, in politics, really, ultimately, um, it would really help. Yep. I'm sure you're, you're, you're a convert, of course, but anyway. <laughs> um, so... Uh, th thank you very much for coming. Thank you, Max, for the invitation. And um, I don't know if you want to close the session. I'd love to invite you all to join me um, in um, thanking Chinyi and Diego and John for a really inspiring session. And I think, you know, if we can go away with um, being motivated to embrace risk, um, consider tactics over strategies, I think it's a very, very helpful opportunity. So thank you very much. Um, thank you.